Oh, good afternoon, brethren, and welcome to you, new brethren and guests. We're really glad to have you here and hope that you can all be made welcome and join in our services and in our fellowship. As they said, we have snacks and fellowship later. Where is the truth being preached and where is it being understood? That's what you need to prove to yourself. Where is the truth? Thy word is truth, Jesus said. Man, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And all through the New Testament, hundreds of times, I think, certainly scores of times, the New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament as Scripture, as the Word of God. That's what Jesus preached out of, continually talked about, referred to as the Word of God. So we often refer to Old Testament Scriptures as the Word of God. We understand, as the New Testament explains, and as certainly God explains elsewhere, that Jesus and the apostles magnified God's law, and we don't keep every part of the Old Testament law, the letter of the law, of executing people who are criminals, carrying out, of course, the various rituals of the law, animal sacrifices and washings. Those things were nailed to the cross, as the book of Hebrews explains. But the spiritual law of God, the Ten Commandments, were not nailed to the cross at all. And if you read our literature and look it up in the Bible carefully, you will see that very clearly. There's nothing in the Bible. And I'll give you, any of you a $1,000 of my own money. I'm not rich, but I can scrape up $1,000 if you can show me where the Ten Commandments were nailed to the cross or where the Sabbath was nailed to the cross. It would be worth it to me to know that. We could just change our whole doctrine. <laughs> but I've studied this for decades and proved it. The thing each of you needs to do, and new older brethren too, because we had a big shakeup in the church of God after Mr. Armstrong died years ago, and thousands of our brethren left. They had not really proved to where they, they say we know and know that we know what God says. You've got to prove it to yourself from the Bible. And don't be afraid to do that. Study and see what Jesus did do. Jesus Christ is our example. He was the light. What day did Jesus keep holy? What annual religious days did Jesus keep regularly? Look at the Bible. Did he keep Christmas? Did he keep Easter? Did he keep Halloween? Did he keep April Fool's Day and all those days? You have to see what the Bible actually says. Or to let Christ live his life in us. And that is the major key to Christian living as far as that's concerned. So let's understand that. That's the key. Who understands and preaches the full truth? That's where the true church is. So I hope we can understand that and try to follow through on that. Now, you had some announcements from Mr. League about the Passover. And if you look it up, and we have a, a booklet on uh, the Holy Days... Uh, maybe it's out there, you could pick up the Holy Days, God's Master Plan. And God's Passover, and it's called the Passover in the New Testament, was kind of taken over and given a different name, Easter, which is the name of an old pagan god, and changed around completely in its meaning, but the original Christians kept it as the Passover. So we continue to keep the Passover in this church because that's what the early Christians did do. Not just Jesus, but the early Christians and that's what we ought to do, and that's what we will be doing in tomorrow's world. I'll mention something about this a little later. But when you become a member of the true church of God, as some of you do, and you better prove it, though, we don't try to rush people into conversion and baptism. We don't have any altar calls here. 
We want you to know and know that you know where the truth is. And when you decide to be really repentant and converted, then you will know what you're doing and prove it to yourselves. But you need to be sure of these things and be sure it comes from the Bible because that's where the key is, as I've said. So I want to give you a little bit about something about the Passover here. And and I, I preached on that directly, the Passover, two or three weeks ago. So I'm not going to repeat that. But Christ course, is the ultimate Passover. He is the ultimate Lamb of God. So I want to talk to you this afternoon about the true Jesus Christ of the Bible and the various aspects of Christ as our Savior and our High Priest, our living Head, our coming King. Turn, first of all, if you would, to the Gospel of John, brethren. Follow me in your Bible. Check up on me. And as we say so often, Don't believe me, believe what you read in the pages of your Bible. That's where the truth is. Back in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or God's spokesman. He spoke through the second person in the God family back then, who was not let yet called Jesus. Jesus had not been born into the human flesh. He was called the Word, or the spokesman was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. And that was perhaps billions of years ago. We don't know. It just says in the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Through who? Through the one who became Jesus Christ. Who was Christ? He had been with God from eternity. He existed perhaps billions and billions of years ago. And we don't understand what it means, the beginning. Our mind can't comprehend eternity, but it was a long time ago. We do know that. So in the beginning was the spokesman and the the personality through whom God spoke. And he was with God, God the Father, and he was God. And he was the creator. God the Father could have created everything, but he did it through this personality who became Jesus of Nazareth. So he, all things were made through him, the spokesman, and without him nothing was made that was made. He created the sun, the moon, the stars. He created all the mountains and the valleys and the animals. He created you and me and all human beings in his image. He was the spokesman representing God the Father. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. When Christ came into the human flesh, He set us the example, just not an example, the, the absolute perfect example. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Then it speaks about John, and then in picking up in verse 10, He, Christ, was in the world, and the world was made through Him. He came into this world as a young Jew, grew up in Judaism in a sense, and yet he magnified it, didn't follow their rituals if you read the story of his life. But he was the one who made the world. When he got on the Sea of Galilee, no wonder he could rebuke the waters. He made the water. (laughs) That was not strange to him. He made all that. He'd been there. He'd done that. He was the creator of the Sea of Galilee. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to the Jews, and they rejected him. They executed him instead, as we know. A lot of people say, well, if we had a perfect minister or handsome man with a great big voice and wonderful personality, then everyone would be converted. Oh, yeah? What about Christ? 
They didn't all follow him. They killed him instead. People hate the truth. The truth, they hate the light because the light makes them, it blinds their eyes. they, They love darkness rather than light, the Bible says. As many as received him, though, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. The word name in the New Testament, again, virtually all scholars agree upon this, means everything about a person. It means your personality, your appearance, your character, your profession, everything you stand for. That's your name. Back in early England or early part of the United States, you know, many men might say to their son if they had a rebellious son who was out drinking and getting in fights or beating up on old people, he would say, son, you've got to straighten up or you're going to ruin our family name. What do you mean? Maybe they had a a store called Jones and Company. Well, people would want to stop trading at their Jones store if that young man was allowed to go out beating up on people. It would ruin their job. It would ruin their family character. It would ruin everything about them. Their name represented who they were. And so that's what the word name means in the New Testament when you really understand it. So God caused his son to come into the human flesh and to be here to set us the example Perhaps millions of years ago, though, Christ and the Father, as they designed the earth, were planning to make human beings in their image. And I won't take time to read that, but you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and it says, let us make man in our image. Some of you remember that, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. They said, God the Father and God the spokesman, let us, that was God speaking, not me, let us. More than one at the beginning. Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. So from the beginning, God created mankind in God's image. Male and female, he created them. And he gave them dominion over all the things all over this earth. The lions and tigers are bigger and stronger than we are. But they don't put us in cages and take us off to zoos. We put them in cages and take them off to zoos because we have the kind of mind that God has to a limited degree. Creative imagination and understanding to do that. We are made to a limited degree like God himself and we're potentially sons of God, real sons of God, not some spiritual thing to where finally we will be born of the spirit and become full members of the God family. And God tells us from the beginning we were given dominion in God's plan and created in his image. So from the beginning, Christ and the Father were planning to make man in their image so they could become full sons of God. All of that involves, as you know, if you think about it or read the Bible, and most of you here, even new brethren have done that or you wouldn't be here. And it all involves learning lessons, learning lessons for all eternity and building character, or at least surrendering to God so God can put His character in us. We don't just build it by our human strength, of course. We have to have God doing it in us and through us so we're fit to live forever in the kingdom of God. In verse 29, notice here in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the Creator But from the beginning, Christ knew that he was going to empty himself. As it says back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, he was going to empty himself and become a human being so he could die 
the death he died on the cross and shed his blood to reconcile us to God the Father, to pay for our sins. Our sins have to be paid for, and Christ paid that penalty in our stead. And from the beginning, he knew he was going to be a human being. He was going to come into the human flesh, and he had to be the Lamb of God, the ultimate Passover Lamb. That was Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he, John wrote, of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. Well, John came along six months earlier. He was born six months ahead of time of Jesus, I mean, of Mary's uh, cousin Elizabeth. Why was John, uh, Jesus preferred before John? For he was before me. Was? How was he? Well, he was millions of years before John because he had been from the beginning. He had been a spirit being before John was ever born. And John understood that. And, of course, many other scriptures uh, explain that. So I don't have time to cover every aspect of things here, but I want to give you an overview of the true Jesus Christ. He was the being who was with God the Father from the beginning. He's the one, the personality who was the Word from the beginning. He's the one who said, let there be light. And there was light. That wasn't God the Father speaking. That was the Word, the Logos speaking, who created this earth and everything on it, and you and me, our ancestors at least. That was Christ who later came into this human flesh to die for us. What is the gospel, this gospel of, of Christ, all about? Well, you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would, in your Bible. Now, this is about all the Protestants do preach, but they do have this part straight. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, Paul writes, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which... Also, you received into which you uh, stand, in which you stand, and in which you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice what he says now. What is this gospel? For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Some people, even in the church of God, Somehow, it's almost unimaginable to me, but somehow I've come up with the idea that Christ, that the talking about Christ is not part of the gospel. Well, that's one of the major things about the gospel. That's about the main thing that Protestants preach, and they preach part of that. They don't understand all of it, but boy, that is a part of the gospel. That's about the main thing they talked about all through the book of Acts. The end of the world, Christ's second coming, we talk about a lot today because we're at the end of the world. They were living right after Christ's death and resurrection, so their mind was on that part a lot more. And that's what they preached about continually. Just read the book of Acts. So here's the gospel Paul preached, that Christ died for our sins. That is wonderful good news, that we can be forgiven our past sins, our vanity, our selfishness our lust, our greed, and be reconciled to God the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is wonderful good news according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? Well, the Old Testament pointed to that again. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. The New Testament hadn't been written yet when he said these words. And that he was buried, Christ was, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Well, of course, later Christ himself back in Matthew 12, verses 38 and 40, say that Christ 
fulfilled what was written back there in the life of Jonah, that Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, doesn't say whale, just a, a special fish, could the creator of the heavens and the earth create a special fish? Some people make fun of that. Well, if he's any kind of a creator, of course he could have made a special fish to swallow a man. He did do that. So he made that great fish and swallowed Jonah. And then Jonah was three days and three nights, the Hebrew says, and the New Testament Greek says. And Christ would be three days and three nights in the grave. Of course, the Protestants and Catholics say Christ was died Friday afternoon and buried just before sunset. And he was raised Sunday morning. Figure it out. That's one day and two nights, not three days and three nights. That's just one of the other hundreds of things they have wrong. But the Bible does show that he was killed and he rose again the third day. And when you put it all together, it's after three days, exactly at the end of the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, Peter, then by the twelve and that he was seen after that by over four for 500 brethren at once. By the way, I'm stumbling a little bit. Mr. League warned me these lights up here. They help you see me, but they kind of blind me from seeing the book here sometimes. So we're having to get used to this new setup where you can see us real good. And they're filming. We send these uh, tapes all over the world. And we'll have to get it set up over a period of time where... You can see us and the camera can see us and yet we can see our notes at the same time. Anyway, he was seen by over 500 brethren at one time. Think of it, brethren, about twice this number that we have here saw Jesus Christ after his resurrection. That he was in some big crowd and they saw him and so many witnesses were there who saw him after dozens or scores had seen him hanging on that cross. A good crowd came out there and saw him this Roman soldier rammed a spear in his side and the blood gushed out and they saw him dead and saw him after he was resurrected, of whom the greater part remain alive to this present time, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, that was Jesus' uh, uh, brother, and then by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me, Paul says, as one born out of due season. Paul came along later than the twelve, but he was an apostle. For I am the least of the apostles, whom not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. What church? The church of God. Mr. Ames, I think, explained that, probably gave you those. But there are 12 different places. I forgot to ask if that was covered. 12 different places it was in the New Testament where it's called the church of God, the church of God, the church of God. And that's the name of the church. God names things what they are. So we're not trying to pick on any Protestant church per se. I grew up in the Methodist church for 19 years of my life, and I was a Sunday school class president at one time, and my grandmother was superintendent of Sunday schools for the whole city. We were very heavy into that, very nice people. But why do they call themselves Methodists? Look it up. They call themselves Methodists because John Wesley was a very methodical student as in Oxford University, so he had a place for everything and was all organized. Well, you know, you don't name a church after someone's personal habits. The Lutheran Church is named after one man. The Church of England is named after England, because Henry VIII had so great lust 
that he wanted this Anne Boland, and he took the whole church away from Catholicism so he could decide to marry her, and the Pope couldn't disannul his marriage. Why did it start? Think about how come these churches got started. Why are they named what they are? What does the Bible says about what they ought to be named? As I say, when uh, 12 is the number of organizational beginnings in the Bible. 12 apostles, 12 patriarchs, you know, the sons of Jacob, 12 gates into the holy city, the 12 foundations of the holy city you read about back in Revelation 20 and 21. A basic number, 12 times, it's called the church of God, the church of God, the church of God. Now, lots of churches are calling themselves church of God. Some of them are Pentecostal, who hoop and holler and don't believe in God's commandments. Others have other ideas. But one way to separate it quickly, if you want to, you new brethren, find the church that has named the right name, the church of God, and prove to yourself, I know some of you have to do that more thoroughly, prove to yourself that the weekly Sabbath, the seventh day, must be kept, and the annual holy days. Please get our booklet, The Holy Days, God's Master Plan. And you'll see that the early church kept those. Christ kept them. Peter kept them. Paul kept them. They will be kept in tomorrow's world. And we are pioneers, in a sense, keeping them now, looking forward to tomorrow's world. There's only one church that does all that, that has the name The Church of God and keeps the weekly and the annual Sabbath. That separates the men from the boys, as we say, pretty quickly when you prove those things. But you need to prove it to yourself and be sure. So anyway, it's called the church of God. And the gospel here, as Paul writes, was very much about Jesus Christ and his death uh, on our behalf. And of course, we're very, very grateful for what Christ was willing to do. Let's go back to Mark now, if you would, the gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1. And here it talks about Christ uh, being born and coming into the world and being witnessed to by John the Baptist. And then in verse 12, Mark 1, verse 12, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there 40 days tempted by Satan. Then verse 14, Mark 1, 14. Now after John was put in prison, remember the... John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, was put in prison and later beheaded by Herod. Jesus came into Galilee preaching. What did he preach? He preached about himself. We read that all the way through the Bible. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. Yes, he did that. But here it says, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So it's the two main thrusts or aspects of the gospel that the Bible emphasizes are this, the gospel of the kingdom or government of God. And I came back from England some time ago. I came back from where? The kingdom of, uh, you know, Elizabeth II, uh, monarch or however it's worded, the sovereign of, of England, uh, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. That's a government. Kingdom means government. Look it up. That's what the word kingdom means. Again, the Protestants talk about the kingdom of God as though it's kind of a warm feeling on your heart. You get converted and somehow you're better or feel better and that's the kingdom of God. No, that's not the kingdom of God. If you're really converted, you might be encouraged by God's spirit, but the kingdom of God is a government that's going to come back when Christ returns, back as it describes it in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. When he comes to this earth as king of kings and lord of lords and rules over all the kingdoms or nations of this earth. 
That will be the kingdom of God. So Christ came preaching the kingdom of the coming government of God, and certainly he talks about himself as the Savior, as the way into that kingdom, and, of course, the king. He is the king of that kingdom. That's his kingdom, not somebody else's kingdom. That's so important to understand. So we want to understand both aspects of the kingdom of God. He's our Savior and then king of that coming kingdom. Now turn back to Acts, if you would, the book of Acts, chapter 8, the inspired record of the apostles and the apostolic church. And here's what they did uh, after uh, Paul's death. We find that the people were scattered in verse 4, Acts 8, verse 4, and they went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Did he just talk about Christ and that's all? No, read on. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken to them by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So he did perform wonderful miracles, and God poured out his spirit back then. And I've told our brethren here, and I tell you new people, as the end of this age approaches, and the prophecy, I've been watching it now for 61 years, I really have, and I can see that prophecy is speeding up. Prophetic events seem to be speeding up. I don't say Christ is going to come tonight. He's not going to come tonight, frankly. Christ is not going to come tomorrow night or next week or next year. Why? How can I dare say that? Because God gives a whole series of events that have to happen. God does not break his own word. He says all these things are going to have to happen first, and they haven't happened yet. But sometime within the next 5 to 15 or 20 years, Christ will no doubt be on this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it may be sooner than we think. I don't think it's less than five years, but it's sure going to be a lot less than 25 years, I hope. And I'm pretty sure. And so we need to see that. So Philip then was performing miracles. But as this time approaches, undoubtedly it will drive us to our knees as a church. And then as we're driven to our knees and cry out to God and walk with God, he will begin to give us the gifts of the Spirit much more powerfully. We do have healings, as Mr. Leagues read, and we do have healings regularly, but not as many as we would like. Some people are supernaturally healed. And I would say to all of you younger people, or newer people, I should say, I've been to some of these Pentecostal meetings in the past just for fun, just to see what they say. And I've heard them say, oh, so-and-so's healed, and so-and-so's healed, and, and these famous evangelists, I should mention their name, but I used to know some of the old-time ones and went to hear them at least. And uh, this... Uh, uh, this deaf guy comes up and, and he says, uh, uh, can you hear? No. And then he, he grabs his head and jerks it back like he's going to break his neck and be healed, be healed and yells. And then, then he says, he, he gets closer to him in his ear. Now can you hear? And then the man says, yes. Well, I go back and talk to the man later and he said, well, you always stone deaf? Oh no. Could you always hear? Yes. Well, are you better? Well, I hope so, brother. So and so said so. I said, well, can you hear now? Well, no, he couldn't hear now. He had to talk loud. They can fake it. There are ways Satan can even have false miracles. You have to prove it. God says to the law and to the testimony, do people obey God's law? Do they teach what the Bible says? And I've told our own brethren, we don't regard great supernatural healings as when someone has a cold and drinks a lot of orange juice and feels better a week later. So if you're still living, you probably will feel better. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, that's not supernatural healing. That's just causing the thing to give it time to get over with. 
We're talking about supernatural intervention, and God will give us more healings. I know. Anyway, as we go on in verse 12 here, they heeded Philip because he astonished them with his sorcerers, this false prophet. But when they believed Philip, verse 12, as he preached the king, the things concerning the kingdom of God. So here it is, brethren. What did Philip preach? He preached the things concerning, you see, the coming government of God. Christ is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's going to take over all the nations. And Philip was preaching that and the name of Jesus Christ. Both of them. Both of them. That is what was taught in the New Testament. They're both parts of the message, the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. You turn to the very end of the book of Acts. And let's turn there real briefly, and we'll see the same thing there as well. At the very end here, near the end of Paul's life, at the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28 and verse 30, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house there in Rome, and received all who came to him, preaching what? What did he preach at the very end of his life? Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of them. They're both a vital part of the gospel. And, of course, they go together because Christ is the king of that kingdom. But some people get that mixed up. The Protestants talk about the kingdom, but they don't understand it, most of them. And then some people in other churches get to thinking they talk about Christ, and that's bad. That's wonderful. It's not bad. It's all part of the gospel of the kingdom, and they're both the same message. Now, let's go to Acts chapter 3, if you would, and verse 19. Turn with me there. Acts 3 and verse 19. Here, Peter is preaching to the Jews. He says in verse 19, Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ. Christ had already come and died and gone off to heaven. But now Peter says, Christ will come back, that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration. There is a time of restoring this whole earth to where God's laws and God's ways will be all over the earth and the truth of God will be over the whole earth as much as the waters fill the, the beds of the oceans, as it says in scriptures in the Old Testament. So the times of restoration of all things, notice which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. All the prophets of God, one way or the other, talked about a coming kingdom, a coming government, a coming Messiah coming to this earth. And so that was the message all through the Old Testament. And God talks about them as holy prophets. God used them. And we, they are scripture. And we need to live by every word of God and when Jesus said that, the only written word of God to which he referred constantly was the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. So we have to understand that. So Christ is coming back and the kingdom of God will be set up on this earth. Now turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4, if you would, brethren. First Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 here. And uh, try to catch my own markings here. I use little tabs at the top of the page so I can turn more quickly and beat you to it. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Here's the Apostle Paul writing the Thessalonians. 
He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. In other words, who have died. And the less you sorrow as others who have no hope. You know, a lot of the worldly people in the various churches of this world, they seem so happy when they talk about going to heaven. And yet when it comes to die, often they're just scared to death. <laughs> they want to take all kinds of shots and shock every, any way to keep living. They're almost, you can tell they're not very sure about this going to heaven stuff or they'd be glad to get there. They're scared to death. No, we shouldn't be that way. We're not to sorrow. We are to sorrow. Obviously, we'll sorrow if a loved one dies. That's natural. We're not going to see him for several years, but it may not be that many years now if they're in God's church. But we're not to just give up and be overwhelmed by sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep or some Protestant ministers make fun of that. Soul sleepers, they call us, who believe in the resurrection. Well, they're the ones that have the joke on them. That's what the Bible says. They sleep in Jesus. But this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, those of us, some of us, will live right up till Christ's coming. And you can see Paul kind of thought it was in his day at one time. By the time he wrote Second Thessalonians, he mentioned a number of things had to happen first. But that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, the dead who've been dead will get a little head start. I don't know whether it's a few minutes or a few hours or whatever, but somehow the dead in Christ rise, then those who are still alive may see that and be inspired. Then they will rise from up, up to meet Christ in the air. They don't go to heaven, frankly, though. The rest of the Bible makes that clear. They meet Christ in the air of this earth's atmosphere, and then they come right back down to this earth because all the other scriptures show that's where he's coming. He's not coming to take them off to heaven. He's coming here. They meet him. Then they come together over the Mount of Olives, and that's where he returns to this earth. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And brethren, that's going to happen in the lifetimes of probably most of you. There could be nothing more exciting than that if you get see these things beginning to happen and you see the dictatorships in North Africa and the Middle East being overthrown, the secular leaders as they have been mainly, which clears the way for the Muslim Mahdi to rise up as coming great religious political character that's going to be their, their savior and get them all together. He'll be called the king of the south. It's getting ready for that. And as you see the king of the south getting ready to appear, and as you see the United States and Britain being brought down, and God breaking the pride of the power of the peoples that he gave these great blessings to, of the descendants of the ten lost tribes of Israel, you see all these things coming together now more than ever. It's exciting. You may live to actually hear that trumpet blasting, a literal trumpet all over the earth. The mountains will be shaking. It'll be the most exciting time in human history. And then Christ's feet will be back on this earth again. The trumpet of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. There will be a resurrection. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It does not say to go back up to heaven though because he will come down to this earth that we will meet him in the air and thus we will always be with the Lord. Where will we be with him? Here on this earth for 1,000 years of the kingdom or the government of God. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, the day of God's intervention like this, uh, so comes as a thief in the night. It's going to come suddenly. That's why I said two weeks ago, we need to really watch world events. It's an exciting time we're living in. It's going to come quickly on the world. They won't get it. For when they say peace and safety, the world is going to think everything's all fine. Frankly, they will have conquered us and up and down the Kurfürstendamm and Berlin and the Via, uh, Via Veneto, I guess it is, the special boulevard in, in Rome and all these other great boulevards in Europe. They're going to be laughing and rejoicing. And these rich, fat Americans that took advantage of them and made fun of them, they will be in charge for a while, but not long, because then Christ will come as King of Kings. But it's going to happen. Sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Notice verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Otherwise, you should not be shocked if you're really people of God and study. I say study this book and understand prophecy. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others, but let us watch. We're to watch prophecy. We're to watch world events. Remember back in Luke chapter 21, he's been describing the whole series of events, the same ones he described in Matthew 24. And then at the very end there, in Luke 21, 36, he said, watch and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So we're to watch and to pray, to be attuned to prophecy, to study this book, making an exciting thing. You new brethren, study it. I hope you will. Try to find the loose brick if you want to. It's all right. I'm glad to have you ask me any question under the sun. I'm not going to stay till midnight. I get tired, but we'll, over time, we'll answer all your questions. The true church of God does understand. We really do, brethren. We understand God's plan and God's purpose. I've talked to some groups that are these sects and cults, and they have a little tiny sliver of truth. I don't want to name them, but you get them off that little thin layer of, of uh, thin line of scriptures they have, and then they're lost. Lost in an impenetrable forest, like the drunk man said. They don't understand anything. They don't understand the rest of the Bible because they're not really reading it. You need to read all the Bible. So read the Bible to where you can understand it and know what you're doing and be sure of what you're doing. We're glad to have you do that. We're glad to have you check up on us. If we have the truth, it can be proved. Truth is powerful. There is no argument against the truth if you really understand it. And if people are willing to acknowledge it, of course, that doesn't mean everybody will be converted. But those who are willing to listen and to learn, they will. And most of you are like that or you would not be here. So you have these scriptures about Christ being the Passover lamb. He died for our sins. Then Christ is coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. And he's coming back to this earth. And we've got to watch and be ready for him. Then that's another aspect of the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ. Christ is Savior. Christ is coming King. And now let's turn to one of the Old Testament scriptures, because God talks about that as being part of the Word of God uh, continually, as I've said. Turn back to Zechariah. Brethren, Zechariah is kind of a bridge book. It's near the end of the Old Testament. 
And it kind of bridges right over. Many scriptures there are bridging right over into the New Testament when you understand it. In Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah 14 verse 1, he writes, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Zechariah was inspired by God to put in this scripture. The day of Christ is coming, and you, your spoils, shall be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. I've been in Jerusalem four or five times. Some of you have been there, and you've seen it, a literal city on this earth. This is going to happen in a few years. The city will be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city should go into captivity. Notice this, written now, way, way back. I don't know the exact date. I think it was written about 300 years before Christ. I may have it written in here, 520. It was written about 500 years before Christ. So it would be uh, 2,500 years ago, God, the God of the Bible, indicated clearly what? That Jerusalem would still be here as a city and that Jerusalem would be a divided city. Is Jerusalem a divided city 2,500 years after this was written? Yes, it is. You've got the Jews and you've got the Arabs. And even now, you read about it almost every day. They're fighting each other even today. Christ is coming back to a divided city. Half the city should go into captivity. That will no doubt be the Jewish half. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off. Then, in verse 3, the Lord shall go forth and fight those nations as when he fights in the day of battle. What day is he talking about? Christ's second coming. Ten or fifteen or eighteen years from now, whenever it is. He's going to come back. And in that day, his feet will stand where? Up in heaven? No. He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. That's where he's going to come back to. And in verse 9, read verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Not king up in heaven, but on this earth. And in that day it shall be the Lord is one, his name is one. And yet in verse 16, and you read all the other verses in between, I'm not trying to hide them from you. I hope you'll study them when you get home. We don't have time to read every verse of every chapter or we'd be here till midnight. And some of you might like that, but some, most of you wouldn't want to stay till midnight. So in verse 16, that shall come to pass that everyone who's left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, and he showed that would be almost all the nations of the earth, directly or indirectly, fighting Christ when he comes back. They will go against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep what? What are they going to keep? The whole world. Christmas, Easter, April Fool's Day. No, they're going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. What? A lot of you have not heard of that. You knew people. I never heard of it growing up in the Methodist church. I don't think I ever heard this chapter even read before. And I attended there regularly for 19 years. But people don't talk about these things. Yet it was one of the seven religious festivals that God gave. All the nations in a few years, and that makes you and me a pioneer if we learn to do it now and learn to be those kings and priests under Christ to help those nations understand the truth. They're all going to come up, not to watch the Jews keep, but they themselves are going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The Old Testament also calls it the Feast of Ingathering, if you look it up, back in Exodus 23 and Exodus, 20, Exodus 34 and other scriptures. And you'll see those areas where the Feast of Tabernacles is called the Feast of Booze or Temporary Dwellings, picturing the Christians are here as strangers and pilgrims, but also it has the connotation 
of the final salvation of all the world when Christ is going to set his hands to save the whole world. Some of you wonder, you new brethren, if you're the true church of God, how come you're so small? How come everyone isn't here? Well, brethren, if God were trying to save the world, his name is El Shaddai, God Almighty, he would save the world. And did you know that most people on the world are not Christian, have never been Christian, never will be Christian until Christ comes again? He's not trying to save the world. If God were trying to save the world, he would save the world. It's just that simple. He's called out a little flock ahead of time to be those kings and priests later in the first resurrection, assisting Christ in ruling the world when the whole world will then be taught the truth. But anyway, these people are going to come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, uh, on them there will be no rain. Would Christ do that? He's the king. You know, the Protestants have the idea of a little Lord Jesus. He's kind of weak and sickly looking, and they show a little trickle of blood coming down from his heart or his head. No, he was a strong young man. He grabbed these tables and just ripped them over and said, Get out of here! When he came into the temple of God, how dare you turn my father's house into a house of merchandise? He had love, but he was strong. He was vigorous. And he's coming back as a lord and master and king. He was the one who was the God of Israel. He did all those things. Yes. He's not afraid. He's not nicey nice. He's the God of creation. He's the Lord God of the armies of Israel. And when he comes back, he's going to win. And he's going to fight to win. You say, well, that's cruel. No, it's not cruel. It's a sensible thing to do if you know what you're doing. And Christ does. What's going to happen to all these poor people? And what happened to the people in the Titanic that just went down? You see the movie. They're, Why did God let them die? Why did God let all those people die in the Holocaust? Well, again, no church on earth understands it, frankly, except this church, the true church of God. They don't get it. They try to say, well, maybe God has a different way or he'll let them in anyway if they meant well. No, there's only one name given under heaven among which men must be saved, Paul wrote, or Peter said back in chapter 8 of, of Acts, That's the or chapter 4, I guess. That's the name of Jesus Christ, and you've got to believe in the true Jesus Christ, which most of them don't do. So what's going to happen? Well, there is a coming time after the millennium and get our booklet on the holy days, God's master plan, and you'll see there's a time after the millennium when every human being who's ever lived will come up and be given a chance. People say, oh, God doesn't give anyone a second chance. I agree with that. He doesn't. But most of the people on this earth, my brethren, have never had a first chance. Do you think all these people over in China right now who are Communist Party members have had their chance? A lot of them have never heard the name of Christ, or if they had, it's just that strange group over in the West somewhere that believes in this odd idea that a man was resurrected or rose from the dead or something. They don't understand. God has not opened their minds yet, but he will. And so when God, in a sense, has to conquer a nation or crush them, that's not the end. That just teaches them a lesson. They will come up later and be given a genuine first chance I'll tell you, the Bible is wonderful when you really understand the plan of God. All these other things make sense that the world cannot understand. But anyway, they're going to come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says in verse 18, if the family of Egypt, you know, they're against the Jews. They'll say, that's Jewish. 
That's Jewish. There's old Jewish feast of tabernacles. They, we won't come up and keep a Jewish feast. If they won't come up and enter in, they will have no rain. God will intervene. He will speak to them in the language they understand. What's the only language that people like Colonel Gaddafi understands? The only language Adolf Hitler understood. The only language that Stalin, when Stalin was told that the Pope, the Catholic Pope had great power. A lot of you older people remember this. He asked, how many divisions? In other words, division, army divisions. How many divisions does the Pope had? Ha ha. You see, they don't understand anything but military power. What they do understand is overwhelming force. Overwhelming force. And when Christ comes back, he's going to conquer the nations. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. Why does he do that? Is Christ not nice? No, he is nice. But he's going to rule them with a rod of iron because the only thing that will make sense to them is overwhelming force. And then they will be resurrected later in the great white throne judgment and given understanding which they do not now have in this world which is completely deceived by Satan the devil. That's why, as you know, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we refer to that a lot. So even you visitors have probably read that in our literature. Revelation 12 and verse 9. Write it down if you haven't got that in your scriptural vocabulary. Satan the devil who deceives the whole world, it says right there. And many other scriptures, dozens of them show that. This is not God's world. It's Satan's world. It's Satan's society. And it's coming apart at the seams. And then Christ will have to come back and straighten it out. The true Christ of the Bible. So even the family of Egypt has to be dealt with with overwhelming force. And so he will cut off their reign. And then they will have the plague with which the eternal strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. They're literally going to be made to do what God says. All of us who are being called today should have the attitude, and even you new brethren, well, this this old guy up there uh, preaching, he, he preaches something different. All right, that's fine. I am preaching something quite different from what I heard growing up, and I used to go to the Baptist and the Presbyterian and the local community church with my friends, and, and we had a whole gang of boys, that, not, not bad gang, but just a group that grew up together, and we'd attend each other's churches occasionally. Never heard these things taught. You know that. They didn't understand it. But we will understand it later, and most of you can prove it to yourself. It's what's in this book. It's what's in this book. That's the, it's always been there. It's always been there. So that's what's going to happen. They will come up to keep the feasts of God, the Feast of Tabernacles. The whole world will begin to keep these festivals that picture God's plan. The Passover pictures the first part of God's plan, which is accepting Christ as your Savior, you know, the Lamb of God. Its blood was shed. Christ's blood was shed. Then the next thing is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you put leaven out of your houses for seven days, kind of reminding you to put sin out of your lives because right after you accept Christ, you're supposed to grow in grace and knowledge and put sin out. Then the next feast is Pentecost. You've all heard of that. And in the Old Testament, it's called the Feast of First Fruits, picturing that God is now calling out the first harvest, the small harvest, not trying to save the whole world. Then you have the Feast of Trumpets. Christ comes back at the last trump. But it's not the Feast of the Seventh Trump. It's the Feast of Trumpets, pictured the time of the alarm of war when God shakes the nations and then Christ comes back at the seventh trump. And then the next thing is the Day of Atonement, 
picturing the time when we utterly fast and realize we're physical and we're going to be made spiritual and humble ourselves, looking forward to that, to when we'll be made totally at one with God. We'll be spirit beings. And that comes right after the Feast of, uh, of uh, Trumpets in God's plan. The next thing is this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Ingathering, picturing then the beginning of the millennium when God sets his hands to save the whole world. And then the seventh festival of God is the great white throne judgment day, picturing the time portrayed in Revelation 20 and elsewhere when all nations come up and the books are opened and they finally understand. And our booklet here explains a lot of that and you can, you can prove that to yourself. God has a wonderful plan. The world does not understand that plan because God has not opened their minds. But we're reaching more and more people. This work is around the world right now by far than we've ever reached before. We're reaching more on television, more on radio, more on the Internet, more on our publications, and we're going to grow a lot more too. As long as we keep preaching the truth, we will explode in power near the end, I'm sure. God wants us to grow. God wants us to reach the world. So we need to do our part. Now, brethren, this indicates then the whole world will be worshiping Christ and Christ will be teaching God's law and true Christianity in tomorrow's world and the coming kingdom of God will be a kind of Christianity the world does not understand. I want to explain something to you new brethren. And I gave a sermon a year or so ago to you other brethren who were here. Some of you were not here or maybe sick at the time. I called it the false paradigm of Protestantism. A paradigm is a kind of a model. It's a, it's a, like in scientific terms, they get a model of the way they think things should be from the laws of science, and then they can model out the way they think it should be, and that helps them understand some of these scientific things more easily. The model or idea of Christianity that most of the Protestants portray to you and me, when I was a little boy growing up in the Methodist church, what was the paradigm presented to me? Well, my sister, Patty, and Catherine, and Catherine is over here, and, and we, we, we came down the stairs and Christmas morning, and we heard that Santa Claus had brought presents the previous night, and the presents were there under the Christmas tree, and Jesus was nice, and little Lord Jesus away in a manger, mother and child, and somehow he was off in heaven somewhere, and, and we were to be good little boys and girls, and you better watch out, Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> and we heard about things like that, and we had Easter egg hunts, and my mother and dad would stay up painting Easter eggs the previous night, and when we got a little older, we caught them doing that, and we began to figure it all out, of course. There's no Santa Claus, and there's no Easter bunny, and we begin to think, well, there's no, no Santa Claus, what about this Jesus? One little boy asked, what about this Jesus Christ stuff? Is there no Santa Claus? Well, you begin to understand it. It's all kind of stuff the Bible doesn't talk about. Look it up in the Bible. Get an exhaustive concordance. Any of you, is the word Christmas ever, ever mentioned in the Bible? No. Is the word Easter ever mentioned in the Bible? No, not in any real accurate translation. It's mentioned once, once in Acts 12, verse 3 in the King James, but then all the even Protestant commentaries acknowledge the word used there that's translated Easter is Pascha, Pasha, P-A-S-C-H-A, translated everywhere else, that same word, as Passover. The old King James translators thought they needed to get Easter in there somehow, so they translated that word Easter, which has nothing to do with Easter. What is Easter all about? It's the word Ishtar, or Astarte. They had various ways to pronounce it. Some of them pronounced it Easter. 
and it was the goddess of sex and fertility in the springtime the pagans used to worship. And what does an egg have to do with it? Well, eggs, of course, a woman has ovum, eggs, and then a child or a little chicken will hatch from an egg. It all goes back to sex and the sex uh, fertility stuff in the springtime the pagans used to have. And they transmogrified all that, as we might say, over into so-called Christianity. I was on the trip several years ago with one of the other Ambassador College uh, teachers and over in Istanbul and Santa Sophia, the mosque, the mosque they have over there, that uh, former uh, Catholic church and then a mosque and now a, a state museum. And the, the guide, young guide who was, I think he was Arab or Turkish, but he wasn't religious. We could, he was just mainly secular. He made comments and you could tell he didn't necessarily believe any religion very heavily. And he was telling us, well, this is the, uh, this is the statue, a nice statue with painted face and so on, uh, of the Virgin. He said, this is a statue of the Virgin Mary. He says, of course, she used to be, uh, she used to be, uh, uh, Diana. He just went and then he started to go on. Well, I stopped him. <laughs> I butted in. I don't know if the rest of the group liked that, but I butted. I said, what do you mean? This hunk of rock right here, this hunk of rock they call the Virgin Mary, were you there? Do you know about it? Is this the statue, the hunk of rock that used to be Diana of the Ephesians? He said, yes. I said, was it brought over from Ephesus? He said, yes, they brought it over. And he says, I read about her. My teacher taught. That's where it came from. So this hunk of rock used to be Diana, the pagan goddess that you read about in the book of Acts. And now that same hunk of rock is called the Virgin Mary. Yes. He kind of smiled and went like that and went on. You know, so what? See, it's all a big joke. They don't understand. They have brought all this paganism, pagan festivals, pagan customs, pagan names, pagan statues, right into so-called Christianity. That's what they've done. And the real paradigm is that they have done that, and they have all kinds of ideas in the modern so-called Christianity of keeping Sunday, the ancient day of the sun, that the pagans worshipped upon, and they brought that in and gradually stamped that out. Hundreds of years after Christ was dead, they stamped it out. As you know, the Emperor Constantine stamped that out about 325 A.D., 300 years after Christ died. They kept the Sabbath, most of the early people of God. But they stamped it out. The pagans all around were worshiping the day of the sun, we call Sunday. And so to get most of them easily into the church without having to change too much, they changed the Sabbath to Sunday. Who did that? Well, the early Catholic Church and the Emperor Constantine, they did those things over and over. They brought in these pagan festivals and put Christian-sounding names on them. All the church historians know that. Start reading it. They know that. They don't say it real blatantly, but some of them do, and they understand it very thoroughly. It can be easily proved. We have a booklet on, uh, well, the Holy Days, God's Master Plan, and we have one called the Restoring Apostolic Christianity. We're going to change that to Restoring Original Christianity. It's a better title. And uh, then we have one, uh, Satan's Counterfeit Christianity. If you want to get one of our strongest booklets of all, you new brethren, get that booklet, Satan's Counterfeit Christianity. You'll see how he presents a whole idea of Christianity. Satan does. It's wrong. His idea is that somehow the devil's idea, what he's trying to get across, is that the, the teachings of, of God through Moses 
and Israel were all wrong. So you come to a dead end and then everything is suddenly made new. And then you have so-called Christianity and you keep Sunday and Christmas and Easter and everything else. And Christ is little Lord Jesus away in a manger. He's not the living head of the church. He's not the Christ that's come back to rule the earth based on God's laws. He's a totally different type of Christian, brethren. That's the thing you have to realize. They portray a whole different paradigm or model of Christianity. Whereas the Bible shows that Christ, true Christianity, the original Christianity of Christ and the apostles for hundreds of years was the Christianity was simply a magnification, not a doing away with, but a magnification of God's laws and God's teachings based upon what was given in the Old Testament. Was what was given in the Old Testament pagan and weird? No. Who gave that in the Old Testament? Christ did. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Christ was that rock. He was the God of Israel. He's the one that gave those things. He's the one that gave the Sabbath. He's the one that gave the holy days. He's the one that spoke the Ten Commandments and said, have no other gods before me because he was God and speaking for him and God the Father together. They're together. He said, I and my Father are one. So that is the correct paradigm of Christianity, the paradigm that you've been taught, most of you, and I was taught, is this whole different idea, like you come to the end of everything when Christ died, then you start all over. No. It's all magnifying what God gave from the beginning and what God gave Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Daniel and David and the great men of God is not all done away. It's simply magnified and the rituals and washings portraying in advance what Christ did by his shed blood and the cleansing of the Holy Spirit they did through water washings. Those things are changed, but not God's laws, not God's holy days, not the way of life. So Christ is coming back as King of Kings and people will be taught a way of life based on God's laws and they will have to keep God's Sabbath. That's the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. There's only one thing God tells you to remember in that in the Ten Commandments. That's the Sabbath. And that's the first thing most people want to forget, if you follow me. God says, remember it. They say, no, they want to forget that. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Can you keep cold water hot? No, it's not hot in the first place. But the Sabbath is hot. The Sabbath is blessed because God blessed it. You keep it that way. And God is telling us to do that. That's what Christ did do, setting us an example that we should follow in his steps. That is the kind of Christianity that Christ taught and the kind of Christianity that we ought to be following. So he is our Savior and he is our coming king and ruler over the world and a government a literal kingdom or government based on God's laws. And then another thing Christ is, is our high priest. We go to God the Father in his name. We picture Christ up there interceding for us, praying for us. There are many scriptures on that, but let me give you just uh, one here quickly. Back in Hebrews chapter 4, if you would turn in your New Testament to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews chapter 4. And... Let's begin reading in verse 14. Paul writes, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Christ is our high priest, sitting at God's right hand. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
Let's understand that, brethren. Some people, some of you are new. And when I grew up again and I didn't know God, it took me a while to get understanding. You sort of picture God as way off and he's spirit and he's perfect and he doesn't understand. Well, he does understand because he made us, but he made us through Christ and Christ understands even more intimately. For 33 and a half years, Christ kept God's laws in the flesh. He set us an example. And now through his spirit, he can live in us and help us do the same thing. He is our faithful high priest praying to God for us. And he does understand because he says we have not a priest who cannot sympathize, but was in all points he, he, uh, with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. Christ was tempted in every way, like as we are, as the King James words it, and yet without sin. He had the poles when they tried to throw him off that cliff when he first began his ministry. How old was he? 30 years old. He was still a young man. Very good shape. He'd been working as a carpenter and stonemason. They built mainly with stones over there. He must have had rippling muscles. His human nature would have cried out, grab these guys and throw some of them off. Take a couple guys with you, whatever. Did he do that? No. He was tempted at all points, though. He saw these beautiful girls all over Palestine, and they were healthy. They got the natural food. They didn't have to go to a health food store. They had the health food right in the real food and the sunshine and the exercise. Beautiful young girls all over. So he had the normal drive to want to have a mate, but he had to restrain that, realizing that he was married to Israel, and he was going to die at age 33 anyway, and he should not be married. So he, with God's spirit, kept that drive under control and used that energy, psychosexual energy, whatever you want to call it, to serve God's people. And he did do that. He never spent around lusting after women. Lust is adultery. He never did that. But he was tempted. He had to pull, and he had to overcome it. He understands. Believe me, he does understand and so we're going to God through a high priest who's sitting at God's right hand, and he understands. So let us therefore come boldly to the throne of God that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can go to God the Father in prayer, say, Father in heaven, Lord Jesus. It's not wrong to mention Jesus. Our main prayer should be directed to the Father. But we can say, Lord Jesus, and know we're praying to God and Christ. They're both there. Christ is at God's right hand. Help me. Help me overcome my vanity, my jealousy, my lust, my greed, all these things that just eat on me and stir me up. Help me overcome. And God does understand. And God will do that and help you overcome. So these are things we all need to understand and we all need to realize as part of real Christianity. Another aspect of Jesus Christ is described back in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there with me if you would. Ephesians, just after the book of Galatians. And just before Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians chapter 1, in this great long sentence that, of course, Peter said Paul wrote many things hard to be understood. He wrote great, long, complicated sentences occasionally. Let's break into verse 19. He's talked about the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the work of his mighty power, which he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He raised Christ up and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. 
and he put all things under his, Christ's feet. Everything is put under Christ's feet and gave him to be the head over all things to his church. Christ has a church and God the Father has put Christ in direct charge over that church over all things. So in our church, Christ is over church administration. Christ is over the youth program. Christ is over publishing. Christ is over media. Christ is over everything we do. Do we not make any mistakes? No. When we started this work, we knew that way back when in our earlier uh, days, Mr. Armstrong made mistakes. We're not perfect. I tried to tell the fellows we don't want to make the mistakes Mr. Armstrong made. Uh, we'll try to do better, which he would want us to do. So let's not make his mistakes because we will make plenty of our own. You know, we all make mistakes. But God does not let us make serious mistakes. As Mr. Armstrong said many times, it would wreck the whole work. He has not allowed us to do that. Christ will lead. Christ will guide his church over all. He is head over all things to the church, which is his body. Together, the church is the body of Christ. He had two hands and two feet on earth. He preached, he taught, he lifted people up, he helped them, he healed them, he blessed them. Today, he works through our bodies together as the church of God to do his work. The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is the living head, and we should recognize that's part of his job today, to guide his church, to guide his servants around the world. You'll notice back in Acts 9, if you had turned back there for a moment, uh, turn to Acts chapter 9, brethren, for a moment here. And here it's talking about Christ. And it says, uh, when Saul was, uh, was, uh, uh, blinded here in Acts 9 and verse 4, uh, a voice spoke to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the Christians. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Here Christ, the head of the church, was alive and guiding this situation. He's not dead. He intervenes every now and then. He shows us what to do, how to do it, works things out. We used to have our offices in our whole headquarters out in San Diego, and a beautiful place called the courtyard. But our, uh, our landlord kept raising the rent, raising the rent. And by the time we left San Diego, it was the fourth most expensive city on earth, or in the United States, I mean, in real estate. And later it became the third most expensive. So we moved back here and we bought a building that's our headquarters over here near Crown Point, where we'll be meeting, I think, at, what is it, April 23rd. And we found by looking at a whole group of buildings out there, we could buy this building or a similar one. We looked at several for almost exactly one half. So God guided us, and yet we needed help. And the very year we needed to move and felt we should move, we were wondering how we could afford it. And at that point, a man in Iowa, Raymond Jorgensen, a bachelor who shared a big farm with his brother, he died and his brother had died earlier, and he was in total control, and he gave us his farm, all the equipment, the buildings, the farm, everything, and it was over $900,000. We needed that to move here, and God gave it to us that very year. That's interesting. Those things have happened in this work. He will take care of us. Christ is alive. 
He will guide us. He will, if we serve him, he will guide us and he will lead us. He's in charge. So we have to understand that and have faith in that. Another aspect of Christianity, that Christ is our head, but also our high priest. And in a sense, this ties into both of those. Christ today is our living Savior and head and high priest, a very important part of the true Christ and of Christianity, brethren. To really get this is the fact a Christian is not someone who just believes in Jesus. Most of the Protestants think that. But remember, James says, you believe in one God, you do well. Even the devils believe and tremble, James wrote. Read it. You can believe but not obey God. It's one thing to believe, but another thing to surrender to let God rule your life. So turn with me back to John, if you would, the Gospel of John. And uh, let's begin reading here in chapter 14. John 14 and verse uh, 20. John chapter 14, verse 20. Jesus said, at that day, in other words, when he comes back again, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. How is Christ in us? Today, He is in us through the Holy Spirit. He lives His life in us. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is He who loves me, and He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love Him and manifest myself to Him. In verse 23, He said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word You're to live by every word of God. How do you do that? And my Father will love him. And we, God the Father and Jesus Christ, we will come to him and make our home with him. God will live in us through the Holy Spirit. And as all our older brethren here know, my favorite scripture in all the Bible is Galatians. Look it up yourself. Galatians 2 and verse 20. It is the best one-verse description of true Christianity in the Bible. It doesn't cover everything. You know, one verse can. But Paul wrote, he said, I'm crucified with Christ. Your old self has to die when you're buried in baptism. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. You're not dead anymore, literally, physically. The old self dies spiritually, but you're alive. Yet not I, yet I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of, as it ought to be translated, and is so in the King James, I live with the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you don't live just by your faith, you live by Jesus' faith. You trust God to make his way of life work, and he lives in you through the Holy Spirit. Will Christ live a different life? Will he keep a different Sabbath? Will he keep a different way of life? No. Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will live in you. So that's what true Christianity is all about, brethren. And that's the key. And I hope all of us can understand that. So all of us have got to have a wholehearted attitude to give our lives to God and qualify to be what God wants us to be. Turn back to Revelation chapter 2, if you would, and verse 26. God says here, And Christ is speaking here, by the way, in the first person. Christ is actually speaking. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. 
And he, not Christ, but he, the overcomer, will rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessel shall be broken in pieces, as I also received from my Father. So Christ is coming back as King of kings, but the overcomers, those of us who give our lives to God and believe the truth, we will be there in the kingdom of God, the coming government of God, to assist Christ as spirit sons of God to help rule this world and to bring about a way of peace and joy and prosperity and happiness that they have never experienced before. In Revelation 5 and verse 9 and 8 and 9, it talks about the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the saints. And they, the saints, sang a new song. Here's the new song, verse 9, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain, talking about Jesus Christ, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God. God is working with you, if he's calling you. He's working with me to make us those kings and priests to assist Jesus Christ in the coming government of God. Christ has to live within us. Christ has to change us. Christ has to rule us. And then we'll be fit to rule forever in God's government. He's made us kings and priests. And what will we do? Flit off to heaven with nothing to do? No. We shall reign or rule on the earth. That's what it says. It says that. It says nothing else in all the Bible but the fact the kingdom of God will be here on this earth under Jesus Christ. So this is what true Christianity is all about. This is what the true Christ is all about. He's our Savior. He's our high priest. He's our example. He's to live his life within us. He's our living head. And he's our coming king. And he is coming soon. And if we do our part in his work today, if we overcome and qualify to be full sons of God, our reward will be awesome. And we will be born of God at the resurrection and glorified as stars shine forever and ever as other scriptures show us. So our reward is often, let's look forward to that. Let's all try to believe in and understand the full, the full truth about Jesus Christ and imitate him and let him live his life within us through the Holy Spirit so we can fulfill the purpose for which we've been created and the purpose for which we've been called.